0: Welcome to the Genesis Speaks podcast, the transformative power of women's stories, a platform that empowers women's storytelling to promote collective vulnerability, acceptance, and healing. I am your host, Jennifer Malcolm, self-made entrepreneur, women advocate, and life balance expert. Welcome back to the next episode of Genesis Speaks, the transformative power of women's stories, where every woman has a story and every story matters. And with me today is a friend that I've known for 30-plus years, Amy Stack. She wasn't Amy Stack back then, but Amy Stack (laughs) is joining us today. I'm just honored. When the podcast was first launched, I got a Facebook messenger from Amy just of encouragement of what this is about, and all it's about is capturing women's stories to bring healing and courage and truth and vulnerability period. There's no other agenda besides the healing journey that stories unlock. And Amy uh, readily raised her hand and said, I'd love to be a part. And so I'm honored to have you here today. And I have a short little bio and then we'll jump into your story. So Amy is a wife, homeschool mom to seven children, a licensed attorney in the state of Ohio, Graduated from balden Wallace, majoring in political science and minoring in English composition. Then graduated magna cum laude from Cleveland Marshall School of Law. She's worked in municipal prosecution as an assistant attorney general, and in the private practice as well. She has pressed pause on her legal career to raise her family and pursue writing currently an executive director and administrator at the Large Homeschool Cooperative in Northeast Ohio Hearts for Jesus Christ, which educates, teaches, and trains 300 homeschool students from three, or, I'm sorry, from pre-K to 12th grade. So welcome, Amy. I'm so excited to have you here. Again, we've known each other for quite a while and kind of been in and out of each other's paths for 30-some years we weren't necessarily close growing up, but just in proximity and hung out at some spaces, but wanted to welcome you to today.
1: Thank you, thank you. And I do think that what you are doing here in a space is so powerful. I know for me, um, hearing somebody about five years ago tell their story in a public platform gave me courage after 20 some years of being silent or you know somewhat silent. Um, to really, I'm already going to start crying.
0: <laughs> no, good. I'm like, I already got my tissue <laughs> out. <laughs> um,
1: but no, that, that gave me courage to really be okay with my story, first of all. Be okay that that's a part of my life. And then, um, two, just to uh, not be afraid to share it. Because that really gives um, freedom to the person who um, is living in in the reality, but it also just encourages so many more people that can just take even just one little piece of your story. So what you're doing is amazing and powerful
0: and I'm honored to be a part of it. Thank you, and you're hitting it on the head because when I share, and as I continue to talk through my story through the podcast and it's coming out in glimpses, it brings healing. Just speaking it and sharing it brings healing to my heart. And then I know that when I do that, it also uh, breaks shame, breaks isolation, um, and yeah. brings courage to someone else to, you know, start breaking down those own, their own walls of fear, shame, vulnerability, isolation. And so thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem. No problem. All right. So you, we've kind of, you know, s- subtly put your title as Broken to Beautiful because you are an amazing <laughs> mom and crazy mom of seven kids now. We'll get to that part later <laughs> in the podcast. Yeah. But we're going to focus on growing up here and kind of what you experience as childhood. And, you know, we all have our own childhoods that we, you know, experience and wanted you to share what it was like growing up for, for you.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so my story has many moving pieces and parts and um, we're going to focus on one, I think, today. But, um, you know, there there were probably three or four major streams of trauma that I had to walk through as a young kid. But, um, you know, when I was real young, it, you know, everything was normal. I was the youngest of three. I have a sister that's nine years older and another sister that's 12 years older. Mom and dad were married. We lived in Slavic Village, which um, if people are not familiar with Northeast Ohio. It is not the best neighborhood. It's a, um, you know, kind of rough neighborhood in Cleveland proper. And my dad, fun fact, was on Jeopardy when I was five. I did cover um, that. That's, see, okay. I remember that.
0: Yeah. Jeopardy. That's
1: right. Yeah, yeah. And we still watch it every night. So um, awesome. He moved us from Slavic Village to Bay Village, which again, if you're not familiar, is um, more of an affluent um, suburb of Ohio. So um, that was early on. I just had, you know, I, I don't have a lot of pictures from my childhood, but when I look back at that, I'm very vibrant. I'm very, I ham it up. I'm dressed in rainbows. I mean, I'm just like the epitome of like happy little girl. And things changed pretty quickly after that. Um, we went through a couple of years. My parents had separated, gotten back together. One of my sisters had run away um, another, my oldest sister started dating, um, who would soon to be her husband. So she was not around that much anymore. Um, by the time I was eight, my parents were divorced. It was really long and hard, um, and both of my sisters were. Um, well, one of my sisters was out of the house. The other one was about to leave. So I went from this happy, healthy, vibrant, hammy, you know, posing in front of the camera, to um, life changed really drastically, really quickly. And by the time I was nine, it was just me and my mom in the house. Um, And that's when a lot of things started really going south. And um, there was a man who was close to the family um, who was around a lot. And uh, I think the first time I can think of being uncomfortable around him um, was probably when I was nine. Um, You know, later on in life, I read a lot about Um, sexual abuse and what it means. And I think when you're not familiar with it, um, you might think like sexual abuse is major molestation or being forcibly raped, and that's it. And I think what people don't realize is a lot of times for childhood um, victims, there's a long grooming period that can be um, part of your story. And certainly it was part of mine. And so when I was about nine, this man um, was very close to us and you know he was around a lot he was the cool guy um you know before he made me uncomfortable he was the cool guy and um had brought home things from work um to blow up in the street and you know i have these memories of um you know a popsicle on a hot day and just things that weren't abnormal um but slowly things started to change and shift and um the first time I felt uncomfortable around him was when I was nine and we were outside and he just kept yanking at my shorts and touching my legs and it just was very uncomfortable and for people who don't know what grooming is it's just the the art of making somebody who is uncomfortable more comfortable with touch or or words and and so he spent a good amount of time um grooming and um Yes. so it was uh, probably another, so I was young. I was nine, maybe almost 10. Um, I have a memory about 10 years old. I remember my sister had just gotten married um, where I was in his home. And again, it wouldn't be very abnormal for that to happen. I actually don't remember this particular day why I was in his home, Um, but, you know, it was very odd. He was in his boxers. Um, He said we were going to watch a movie and he had porn on, and I didn't know at the time what that was. Um, I'm just speaking really candidly.
0: <laughs> Go for it. You <laughs> so, um, so do not have to filter here. I don't know
1: if I've ever spoken this candidly before, so, um, but I think it's important. And so I, um, it was really uncomfortable. And I think when I replay this in my head, I think I should have lost, right? I mean, like, you get up and you leave, but I didn't feel like I could. And that was part of, I think, the psychological part of what... Um, childhood sexual abuses is, is there is a part where mentally um, you don't feel the freedom to, to leave. And it doesn't make a lot of sense until you can process and heal, right? Um, but that's what started a two year um, abuse relationship between him and I that went from um, very uncomfortable moments to touching to full out rape. And I lived in that for about two and a half years.
0: I I I want the audience to hear very, very specifically about the grooming piece where sure. something in your, in your, you know, eight, nine years old knows like, okay, this is odd and it makes me feel uncomfortable, but the entire goal right. is to start making that normal and that right, you're right. not afraid of that feel or that touch and that's normal. And so that grooming process that then gives entry for more to occur and that as a child you're just you're just trying to be a kid you're just trying to be a kid and we're, we're taught to mind our parents and respect adults and and they're supposed to be safe and protect us and that part of our brain and and psyche hasn't formed yet to really understand what's going on
1: Sure. Yeah. And I, and I think it's important to know there's so many layers to this. There's, there's um, fear and there's shame and there's confusion, like mass confusion, right? I mean, there's just no grid for this. I mean, even when you're an adult, if you've never had to um, walk through it, there's not a lot of grid for it. But as a kid, when you're trying to form um, relationships and trust, um, there's just no grid. And so it's really hard to kind of decipher um, what's you know what to do what to do and I think part of the grooming process for me once things started you know like I said there was probably almost a year if I were to go back and really be honest there was probably about a year of inappropriate touching inappropriate things to say you know putting his arm around me and touching me in places he shouldn't and I'm not even including that necessarily in the um, you know when we really entered the abusive part that was to me part of the grooming it was making me. It was always uncomfortable. I'm. I. I was never comfortable. Right. But it was doing it so much that it normalized it. That became my normal relationship with him, and so it almost became an expectation. And it was almost like you turn up the fire a little bit at a time, right? And so once you were comfortable with one thing, he kind of, um, you know, entered a new phase and touched more and said more. Um, the the first few times that. Things really got, you know, from the time that I was in his living room watching that movie um, or trying to divert my eyes, honestly, when he was right. watching the movie, right. he, um, you know, he, he pleasured himself during that whole thing. And that was, I mean, I was 10. I I've never seen anything like that before. I didn't understand what was happening at all. Like not even, I had not had to talk, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I not had not had the
0: class at the school. There's no
1: birds in I went to the small, no. <laughs> I mean, I went to this small private school, like we did not talk about that, you know you hit, you left room for the Holy Spirit between people, and you know there was just no no gray and um and I remember him almost you know there was almost an embarrassment, I think, on his part, and it was a lot of you know, you're such a good girl, you're such a good girl um thanks so much for just you know it was it's been a hard day for me this was just a way for me to be happy thanks for making me so happy you always make me feel happy and it's this like almost um narrative played over and over and over again to where you know in the middle of mass confusion and shame which I don't even know if I could identify that I felt shame at that moment but um you know I'm hearing I'm helping him right I'm helping him you know and so you walk away with this mass confusion going, okay, but maybe whatever. I mean, I don't understand what just happened, but he's happy. I feel like garbage. Um, but okay, that's it. And it wasn't it. It was, um, you know, it was kind of that slow burn as, um, Hey, come here. I've had a hard day, you know, come just sit by me. And it was a lot of touching. And at first it was just him pleasuring himself probably almost for a year. Um, and then it, it got, you know, it, it continues to get Um, deeper and deeper and deeper and at some point and forgive me because I really don't remember when there's a lot of like you kind of disconnect from your body when you go through this and so there's not a lot of detail as far as timeline um, for me but at some point the narrative kind of shifted to you know that if you tell anybody we're both in trouble you know if you tell anybody about this you're you're a bad girl you know if you tell anybody this is your shame Right. and I don't know what I must have given off to where that kind of shifted, but that's where like this whole nother layer of um psychological abuse you know w- was involved because it made me feel guilty, right, and I didn't do anything wrong, you know, <laughs> so um so it was like this this I felt already trapped, I felt like I couldn't tell anybody um and just so everybody is aware, I didn't have you know this is where I said there's so many moving pieces of my story but. I didn't have anybody to talk to during that period of time. Um, my mom and dad were divorced. Um, my dad and I have a great relationship now. He has been my constant. But at the time, um, he, I, was, I was led to believe that he was not a good man. And so we did not have a close relationship for many years. And so he was not an option. Um, both of my sisters weren't an option for, for many reasons. And my mom certainly wasn't an option. Um, this is not one of those things you run and tell your girlfriends at school when they're talking about, you know, going ice skating on Friday night and what to, you know, how to wear their hair. You don't just tell them. And so you find yourself in this place where you're like, how do you even, who do you talk to? How do you even broach the subject? Um, I remember trying a couple of times with a friend of mine, kind of trying to hint around, but it was so awkward. I mean, it's just so like, they don't have a grid for that either. Right. You know?
0: And I think it's important that the layers of what you're doing, you're a good girl. You're a good yeah. girl. You're a good girl. So he's, you know, he's trying to put into you positive reinforcement for devastating harm behavior, but trying to groom you into, um, but this is a good thing because you're helping, you're helping. And, and as a, as a small child growing up, that's all you want to do. You want to, you know, we, yeah. you learn, we learn right and wrong. And Absolutely. learn to help other people and he's reaffirming that what you're doing and what he's experiencing is helping. And yeah. then when you're in that for months at a time, it sounds, you know, potentially up to a year of that positive reinforcement yeah. through abuse, then he changes it where, well, now if you sh- say anything, you're a bad girl. So yeah. that, you're, that, that silencing your voice and, and and not allowing that to come forth. Again, it's the psychological abuse that occurs oh. is is unheard of.
1: Wow, it's huge. And he knew. I mean, he knew me. He knew my family. He knew what we had gone through. So he knew I'm a you know I'm a recovered people pleaser. I say that I'm still recovering. I like I like to make people happy. I me don't too. like to disappoint them. <laughs> um, I've always been that way, you know. And he knew that. And he knew that you know I was going. He knew that my family was decimated within the matter of a couple years. He knew that I was vulnerable. He knew that um, because I lived with a single mom, there was plenty of opportunities to come and enter my world, you know, and and really remain unnoticed for that part. Um, So he knew all of that. And that's where the predator status really, you know, that's where you just, For years and years and years, I felt guilt for allowing it to happen and not calling it out. But it was many years later that I realized that he was preying on me. You know, it was not, it was not my fault. It was him. Um, But you have these layers too. You know, about five years ago, your oldest sister actually invited me to this conference that she had um, down in Columbus. And she had a speaker. Her name was Nicole Braddock-Bromley. And she is a fantastic speaker about you know, speaking your story with, with regards to sexual abuse. And she, I got her books. I like, when I hear somebody, I order all of their books. I'm very, very impressionable that way. Um, And she uncovers really deep stuff that um, I had never really processed through like, and here we go. I mean, this is like, this is vulnerable stuff. Okay. Your body is designed to respond to touch. And even when you are being abused, there can be pleasurable responses from your body. Absolutely. Do you have any idea how many years it was for me not to feel like my body was betraying me every time? You know, it's so hard to kind of navigate those feelings because you don't understand them at all. There's just no grid at all. Um, So it was her that really kind of busted open that door for me going, that's okay. That wasn't your body that betrayed you. That was the way God designed your body to react. And somebody stole, um, that piece from you, you know, so that was, that was actually only five years ago that, you know, that started healing for me. Um, and I've been married for 17 years. So I had to think about that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this isn't over the, the healing that comes from all of this, um, is not over. I know, I know of a few um, victims who were victimized later in their either like late teen years or adult years, and they have different things to walk through that I have never had to walk through um, with regards to their healing. Um, But I also have spoken to a few childhood survivors, and it's very hard for us to understand a healthy worldview of people, trust relationships, and just basic biological reactions, to be honest with you, because our whole um, our whole perspective has shifted sure. when we were victimized, when we were abused.
0: Sure. So as this abuse is going on and you, you don't feel like there's, there's no one in your world right around that time to speak this to, you're learning your own body. You're, mm-hmm. you're learning about sex and sexuality in a way that was never meant to happen. How, what broke the cycle or what changed to pivoted through through the
1: abuse? Sure, so a few things um one was uh substance abuse was a big part of this too. I mean, this man was very rarely sober um again at the time i you know you you kind of just grow up thinking certain things are normal, so I didn't realize that people didn't live like this um but he definitely um had a problem with that, so he um was taken to jail a few times in and out um for you know different alcohol related or drug related offenses and That would always press a pause in my story, which was fantastic, but I knew it was never over. Mm -hmm. Um, Simultaneously, during this season, um, there were a lot of other things that were very off and bad in my world. And so um, there was actually quite a few things that have happened. But um, my sister filed for custody of me when I was, I think she filed when I was 12. with a lot of you know different allegations going on, and it we were in about a year and a half custody debate um, court court um, case uh, over where I should go. What you know what's going on? I had a um, guardian ad litem, which is an um, attorney you know who's given to a child to kind of see what's best for that child. Um, and I was conflicted constantly about whether to tell her about this abuse or not. Um, I knew the environment I was living in was not good, but I knew that if I had spoken, I'd be taken from my mom. And that's a tough decision to make. It was really tough. And again, lots of different players in my store, lots of different moving pieces, a lot of guilt, a lot of neglect, a lot of things going on. And I chose at that moment um, when I was 12, you know, at the ripe old age of 12, very wise in my day, I chose not to say anything. Um, But the evidence about, my life was so overwhelming that on January 12, ninety six, which I was thirteen, um, freshman year of high school, I came home one day and I was told that I wasn't living there anymore. The courts had removed me, um, so I li- went to live with my sister. I thought that that was going to be temporary, um, mm-hmm. but a few short months later, uh, my mom stopped coming for visitation, um, and I-, I realized she had moved. I kind of heard through the grapevine that she had moved to North Carolina, so that was that. I never went back to my childhood home. Um, I never was able to really um, have closure there, (laughs) but the actual abuse stopped. I don't know when he would have gotten out of jail that last time. Um, I never, I never had to figure that out. So that's a good thing. That's
0: a good thing. So as you're now going into teenage years and puberty and, you know, going into how did that affect, you know, dating, not dating, um, wanting, yeah. you know, wanting to have a, you know, wanting to be seen, but realizing, you know, what you experienced as a child was so devastating and harmful and scarring. Like, how did that, you know, transpire as you're, you know, getting the years that you, you should be sure. as a teenager?
1: Um, it literally changed everything. It changed. I, I was not the vibrant, happy person anymore. I was very withdrawn. Um, I didn't trust anybody, like, let me just be clear. Like nobody, I did not let anybody get close to me. Um, I started this kind of journey through my teen years of nobody. I don't need anybody. Um, they certainly don't get a piece of me. I had kind of resolved to just getting through, (laughs) um, and living my life completely on my own. Um, I threw myself actually early in, I threw myself into achievement. So that was how I coped, you know, some people, I I heard statistics all through growing up where like people who are sexually abused are more likely to be promiscuous and whatnot. And I think there's a lot of validity to that, but I think the vast majority of people kind of go and start coping in ways that make them feel, um, worth, you know, worthy. And I think the more I read, the more I've researched, the more I've talked through and, and worked through this, it. It's almost a persona, like an abuse victim either goes that way, the you know, promiscuity, rebellious way, or they overachieve. And I was definitely in the overachieve. I don't know which is worse, to be really honest with you. Right. Overachieving is like a drug. Um, and so I threw myself into every activity, every, um, anything that you can get a grade or an award, that was me. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do it the motivation was not necessarily to draw attention to me. I actually did not want any attention drawn to me. It was to prove to myself that I still had worth. And, um, yeah, I wish I could say that I'm totally healed of that, but you find yourself in these cycles and you go, why am I doing this? Why am I trying to achieve this? Why am I trying to, you know, go And it, and it kind of comes back up that, oh yeah, you're, you're still worthy. Even if you don't have to run, you know, um, And so I found myself during high school years, um, definitely withdrawn. I mean, I had friends like, don't get me wrong. I was in the popular group and I definitely, um, my best friend was homecoming queen and, you know, we, we went to the parties and everything, but I didn't date. Um, the, the only time I kind of tried to date was because there was rumors going around about me that I, why I wasn't dating. And I was like, Oh, I got to decide. So I would go out with a football player or whatever. And, um, but I was extremely uncomfortable. I was labeled the ice queen, you know, physically it was like, don't even touch me. Don't go near me. I don't want anything to do with you. And again, it was like this, I I didn't dress. I dressed very like baggy clothes, dark colors. Just, I had, you know, one, I didn't want attention. Um, I started getting curvy, you know, and I started getting attention and that scared me so much. And so I tried to hide that, um, and I had the lowest self-esteem, probably <laughs> out of everybody in my high school. I had the lowest self-esteem. It didn't matter what I looked like on paper. Um, I just walked around thinking I was worth absolutely nothing. And part of that came from the last maybe few months of my abuse, where, you know, nobody talks about after the abuse happens. You know, there's we talk about abuse almost like in a in a box, like oh, I was sexually abused or this happened, but your abuse is made up of moments seconds and minutes and and hopefully not hours but sometimes hours and it's made up of more than just um actions it's made up of words and it's made up of like heavy feelings and so the moments after he was satisfied um early on you know you got the good the good words um affirmations from him later on it was i can't believe i'm doing this with you you're so dirty kind of words you know those are the that's what you took on. Or, um, you know, I was really, I was really small and scrawny and it was like, I can't, you know, I can't believe I'm doing this kind of thing. And you just feel like, wow, if I'm not even worth it to him, <laughs> you know, right. how can I be worth it to anybody else? And so, um, I just stayed away from that. I didn't want anything to do with anybody and that's how I live my most of my high school years, mm-hmm. um, got involved with church and, um, <laughs> I did not like anybody there. At all. <laughs> I like anybody there either. <laughs> no, I just did not fit in. I didn't fit in. Right. Um, my I best think, friend in the whole world right now. Go ahead. I, was go just ahead. Saying,
0: I think part of it, like what you we were talking about the achievement, it's something you can control. It's something yeah. that you know you don't want the attention, but I am in control. You yeah. wearing baggy clothes. You wearing dark clothes. You isolating. You choosing. I have to go for a football player to check the check the box, and then yep. keep moving. But it's that sense of I'm in control of my body and who I am. Even if it's a little bit of power, that little bit of, you know, this is this is me being taking back what someone stole from me, even in minute ways, I'm sure at some level was healing and courage. Yeah. And and you still have a long journey to go of how this unfolds.
1: Right. And I needed to do that. Right. I needed to, I think there's a season of, you know, the actual time of the abuse was over and the next phase of healing for me, from my story had to be, um, I needed to figure out who I was, right? you know, and I'm, I'm thankful for that opportunity that I got to go. I, I have, um, we talk a lot about in this day and age about privilege. I have an enormous amount of privilege, even despite what I went through. And I was in a fantastic school, um, private high school where I had opportunities left and right to go figure out who I was and what I was good at. Um, I do not discount that. You know, I think that was very, um, huge. I mean, that was my saving grace. I can't imagine walking through what I walked through and not having what I had. Um, I don't think I recognized that at the time, you know, um, but definitely looking back, I'm really thankful for that.
0: Right. For sure. So as you're now, you know, you said you started getting involved in the church. So how did that next season, you know, did you press further into academics? Did you, um, confront your abuser? How, how did that next season of life look for you, you know, coming out of high school?
1: Sure. No, I avoided all, everything that had to do with me, um, even, You know, all through high school, people knew that I did not live with my parents, but nobody knew why. I didn't say a word to anybody. My best friends didn't know why. Um, Very, very, very few—like I can count on one hand—had an inkling of what had happened. And so I was really okay with that because my choice was throw myself into academics and achievement. I wanted to go to law school. I wanted to be the woman who was my guardian item to be quite honest, she saw through my brokenness and did the right thing and advocated for me. She had the courage i didn 't have when I was twelve to get me out of a situation that i couldn 't get myself out of and I felt like i um, had I-, I owed something to the world to do the same for somebody, and so that was kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to just go and pursue um, you know becoming a lawyer and um, helping people, I really wanted to do some something great, I just, I did, I wanted to be this like, great contributor to the world, and um, I burnt out pretty fast, to be really honest, I took on too much, this is kind of my story, I like, I take on a lot, I do really well when I take on a lot, and then I burn out, you know, and so um, I went through high school, um, church was a huge part, at first I absolutely hated it, like, can't even begin to tell you your sister's gonna listen to this and she's gonna be so mad <laughs> I oh, love man. her. <laughs>
0: that's okay you can love her and hate the experience that you had
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no i would look around and there were all these perfect people in my head you know everybody has a story everybody has a story but in my head i'd look around and think well, of course they're smiling and singing because they haven't gone through the hell i've gone through you right. know and it was really years and years and years of um letting god chip away and go, yeah, there's a ton of hypocrisy here. That's the church, right? right. <laughs> but knowing that um, God is real and his word was real and it always had been, you know, the funny part of my story is despite all of what was going on in my life, um, we had to look right in the eyes of others. So we went to church every Sunday and every Wednesday and I was in mission acts. We went to an assembly as God church and the saving grace of my entire life was the fact that Mishinats, if you're not familiar with it, it's almost like Christian Girl Scouts, okay, and you have this book that you have to, if you accomplish all these things in this giant binder, you get a crown at the end, and that was, like, the epitome of achievement for me, like, you get to crown me, and so I found myself in this season where I'm literally living through a hell, I'm also memorizing scripture. (laughs) Right? And it wasn't because I was this good Christian girls because I wanted the I wanted the freaking crown, you know, like the, ba- the
0: badges yeah. and the crown.
1: <laughs> right, but um, God works in mysterious ways because I still have all of that scripture that I memorized back then. Is it bubbles up all the time mm-hmm. in me, and so going through high school, I had this basis, and I really wanted to know: Is he real? Is he in this? You know, who is he um, apart from? the church. But um, unbeknownst to me, I actually met my husband there, um, which I'm really angry about. I I, <laughs> I had this, this plan. I was not going to get married. I was not going to have a family. I was going to go to law school. I was going to move to Manhattan. I mean, I was like,
0: was I would tell
1: everybody. Yeah. yeah. I just, I would tell everybody. And um, the second youth group event that I had gone to My husband, who is one of the most introverted people you will ever meet in your life, was speaking that night, which was very strange, about how he had lost his mother. His mother had passed away when he was 16. And um, the words that he spoke literally, like, connected to my heart. And all of a sudden, this little tiny part of my heart that I'm pretty sure had died, you know, started sparking a little bit. And um, I set that aside for years. Um, But... And the one girl in the whole youth group that I thought, oh my gosh, she's the most annoying. She's like stickingly perfect. You know, there's no, she's my best friend. So like, <laughs> you don't know what life is going to do. Um, these two people that I just thought there was no way they're they're my my two racks in life, you know, here,
0: but. And I love the distinction because, because when I went through my dark time, 12, 13 years ago, And I'm I'm starting to share this a little bit more on the podcast, but I really went through a really dark season and made some harmful choices, made some powerful choices, made some difficult choices. But through that, I hated, hated -hmm. the church, hated church, but I didn't hate the people, some of the people. Right. And I didn't um, hate God. So I, I was able to distinguish that the institution has people and it's full of hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. and that's not the nature of God, so, and and to be able to, um, you know, growing up in the church, growing up as a pastor's kid, growing up with, you know, my sister and her husband are youth pastors, and, you know, being on that pedestal of being a PK, and and, and, and needing to be perfect, I do have a, a, a battle of perfection, and I love Renee Brown's work of the gifts of imperfection, and, you know, how it brings shame, and all of that, and, but through that, being able to distinguish you know, and identify like the church is fallible. The church is human and to still allow uh, faith to arise and to allow a a small beating of a heart. You know, that little, that little thing, when Dan spoke that little bit of, Hey, my heart isn't dead. There's something that can, and, and unexpected people who give you the drinks of cold water, the the kind smile, the, flowers unexpected that mm-hmm. you're like that's human kindness and that's you know unconditional love from heaven through people right. um is powerful yeah mm-hmm. yeah so you you didn't end up in manhattan no but, i did not you, I ended you up did in Berea. <laughs> <laughs> but you did end up as an attorney so tell the audience I a did. little bit about your success there because that is that's a huge achievement
1: sure yeah so i went to Bonn Wallace in Berea and um you know, that's a whole story in and of itself. I had a full ride elsewhere, but I chose for another reason, um, for my dad really to stay near. And so, um, I kind of begrudgingly went through the four years at Baldwin Wallace (laughs) and all the while, um, you know, and Zan and I had started this really strange relationship of, um, I guess I, we never dated. Like we just, I, I told him early on, like, I just, I, if if you like me, you're going to just distance your, like, this was social distancing, because our social distancing was cool, okay, so I told him, stay six feet away, don't touch me, I mean, I, for real, so for four years of college, that's how we pretty much were, um, and then um, my last year of college, well, my junior year of college, um, no, it was senior year, sorry, he proposed, um, I finished college a semester early, graduated in December. We got married in March and I started law school then in September, August, September, that next year. Um, I loved law school. It is a world unto itself. Like it is a, um, you know, you can do really well in school and then like just totally dive, nosedive into law school. Um, They make you feel like you are the worst human in the whole world. Um, Somehow I stayed in and survived. I loved learning about it. I loved writing. Um, so yeah, I passed like with flying colors all through. I did really well. Um, really shockingly honestly. Um, and then passed the bar on the first try. So I became a licensed attorney. Um, officially you take the bar in July, you find out in November. So I officially became a licensed attorney. Um, one month before my son was born. So that's, you know, I'm jumping around in the story a little bit, but yeah. Um, so November of 2006, I was officially licensed. Wow.
0: And did you practice? Because I know you were also pregnant. Did you practice? Yeah. (laughs) Did you practice like how, like with this degree, what have you done or what's the last, you know, 10 plus years looked like for you in that regard? Sure.
1: Yeah, I did. I, um, in law school, I clerked for the uh, a city, a local municipality, um, for two years. I loved that. I started working with a the prosecutor there. Loved that. Got an independent license from the um, state bar to start actually prosecuting cases before I was bar certified. So that was fantastic. Um, I adored that. I really, like, I those were happy days. Um, and then I had gotten a job with the Ohio Attorney General before I had graduated. Um, and so, yeah, I was... Um, for, the, for, uh, for your listeners, I know you know this, but I wasn't supposed to have any babies medically. Um, so when I started interviewing my last semester of law school, um, I had a, a lot of job offers and I you know, was going back and forth and trying to decide what I'm going to do. And then once I committed to the Ohio Attorney General, I found I was pregnant very miraculously. Right. So this was like, this is like act three of my life, right? <laughs> like a total right. curveball. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do again, I can't even emphasize more that like, I was not healed and whole at this point. I still, I wanted to be a mom, but I had major reservations. And so I started with the attorney general's office. Um, when Micah was born in December, I took maternity leave and I think God just did something in my heart, which was part of my healing journey. And, um, I kind of felt like If I was going to do this mom thing, (laughs) which was totally foreign to me and just scared the socks off of me, that I was going to do it on my terms and I was going to do it my way and I was going to try to do it well. And again, I like to achieve, right? So here I was like throwing my entire self into being a mom. And I think that disappointed a lot of people that I walked away. I I ended up quitting my my job for the attorney general. I worked in private practice part time for a number of years following. So, um, gosh, that was 2007. I quit. And then from 2007 to really 2011, I was in private practice on and off um, part-time. I owned my own practice for a little bit of time. It actually grew really, really big and I couldn't handle it. So I kind of started shuffling that off and, you know, started working for other people again. Um, But since 2011, I've really been um, doing things kind of off the grid. So I've been arranging adoptions. Um, I've, i I arranged the very first Ohio adoption in Ashtabula um, that was done without an agency because adoptions are really expensive. And I tried to cut out a huge chunk and it was was a huge battle, but I did it. And um, so I've been doing things kind of hush hush, you know, and pro bono. I mean, I hate that term for free. I mean, I'm serving people. I'm using what um, I'm doing, what I I, I, said, I wanted to do. I wanted to help people. And when you're in full time, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the rat race. And I became a different person. So I'm happy to be where I'm at now, although I'm not making any money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yet, yet, or now. Who knows? Yeah, now. (laughs) Now. That may change, but um, yeah. (laughs) So, so tell the listeners, Micah. Yes. All seven. (laughs) Yeah. So kids.
1: Yes. Seven kids. Um, Mike is 13. Noah just turned 12. Sam turned 10 this week. Emma was our first girl. She's eight. Um, you're quizzing me here. Eli, (laughs) Eli's going to turn six next week. Um, Lael is our two-year-old and then we have an almost six-month-old baby Aria. So.
0: Wow. 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 And so, again, for the listeners, I know Amy's story that, you know, she was due to, you know, medical stuff. She was, you know, told she couldn't have kids seven kids later, (laughs) you know, and and you showcase your kids all the time uh, on Facebook, on social media, uh, so different that they are. Yes. (laughs) And, wait, and you homeschool i
1: do i do cuz remember I, everything i do i pour my whole self into it right um yeah well no that came Micah, my oldest is extremely intelligent and i we went through all of this like what do we do with this kid you know and homeschooling became an option and again not knowing that we were going to have more um i have endometriosis a grand amount of uterine fibroids and polycystic ovarian syndrome. And we had, um, I was diagnosed with all these things. And as a teenager, um, we had gone through a whole bunch of different um, interventions. I actually had a hysterectomy scheduled um, my last year of law school. My my health was so poor at that point that um, that was kind of the last option. And I begged for it to be postponed until after the bar exam, because I couldn't imagine taking a bar exam and having hysterectomy. And I was twenty. I don't know, 23, 24 or something like that. Um, or 25, I don't even know. And um, the so it all is really, at it, this point. And so, um, they postponed it and I found out I was pregnant with Micah. So it was just this complete miracle. Um, and then it was like, boom, 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 boom. So here we are. It's like, I haven't even had a chance to kind of catch my breath and think about, um, I often say in my moments of frustration, like, this is not my plan. This was not my plan. <laughs> I'll be really honest. It's still hard. I'm not your homeschool mom that makes cookies and um my home, you know, I want it to be the home where you walk in and you feel like a hug just happened, but it's there's gonna be shoes you trip over and I have, you know, four boys and <laughs> it's just it's loud and wallpapers, you know, coming off the walls I and mean, it's just how it is. <laughs> so, like it's real. It is, it is.
0: And, and then, um, through the journey too, you also became a special needs mom. So yeah. to share a little bit about your special girl.
1: Sure. Yeah. So again, um, you know, when we were talking about ever having kids before Dan and I got married, um, you know, he was aware, um, that I likely was not ever going to be able to have them. And we talked about adopting and, you know, Dan is not a planner. I remember our first big fight was when I had asked him like what his five-year goal was and he was like what the heck is that like I how can you how can you predict what you'll you know what's gonna what life's gonna look like in five years and it's funny because thank God (laughs) Um, but we had talked about it and I told him like really early on you know I I kind of feel like it was almost God's plan not to give me kids because there's just no way I can't it, it, it wasn't like I didn't want kids because I did not like kids. It was, I did not want kids. Cause I didn't know how to be a mom. And I felt so broken that I didn't feel like I could nurture, you know? And the other thing that attracted me to Dan is he's a very independent person. You know, he is not needy. <laughs> he's not codependent. So we are best friends, you know? And, um, so that's what made like marriage doable, but I could not imagine for the life of me having a child. Um, You know, and God changed my heart, and we went through a a series of um, things to where, you know, I actually then desired to have kids, but still had this fear. And I remember praying, like, every day while we were trying, just don't give me a special needs kid. Like, I know that sounds terrible. Let Mm -hmm. me just, I am quite aware of how terrible that sounds.
0: Right.
1: Um, But I just knew coming from where I came from, just being a mom was going to be hard enough. Right. I, I definitely questioned whether I could just nurture a mom um, or a, a child as a mom. Right. I, I couldn't fathom a special needs child. And honestly, through the years of parenting, I thought the same thing. We've had challenges, you know, um, but in 2018, so just a little over two years ago um, we went into the hospital to have our sixth child, our second little girl, beautiful labor and delivery, Actually, my oldest was there. Um, He wanted to be there, and so it was just a beautiful labor and delivery. And um, you know, he got to hold her like as soon as she was out. And I felt immediately. I looked at her, and I knew that she had Down syndrome. And um, whoo, there's so much to say. So um, (laughs) the the next 24 48 hours became really hard. It was a lot of interventions. what I had known of Down syndrome was what I realized is very little, you know, I I knew very little. Um, they have a ton of health issues. They have the potential, you know, to have a ton of health issues. It literally can affect every system and every organ of their little bodies. And so she was taken really whisked away. Um, and I can, I realized I'm privileged to have had five beautiful, healthy children before her to where you have this moment where you're snuggling, you're bonding, the pictures, you know, you see daddy hold, we didn't have that with her. Um, it was, you know, we had some moments, but it was very hard. And, um, we then, oh gosh, it was just intervention after intervention, doctor after doctor, hospital after hospital. And at 10 days old, she was also diagnosed with what's called, um, transient myeloproliferative disorder, which is um, a blood disorder that is pre-leuke- pre-leukemic. Um, her body has the ability to basically produce leukemia cells, um, different strains of them. And so then they tested to see if she did in fact have leukemia and she did. So at 10 days old, here you know, 10 days before this, I was prepping to have bring home this baby. My stress was about how to transition from five to six kids do I have meals in the freezer? You know, do I have the onesies washed? And 10 days later, we were sitting in a hospital room and, you know, uh, onco- pediatric oncology, um, just broken, just absolutely broken. We actually received the official Down syndrome um, diagnosis at the same time as we received the leukemia diagnosis. And it I, I mean, that was the only time I've seen my husband lose it. Like he's so steady. Um, but he cried and, you know, just needed some time, which <laughs> we all did. Um, <laughs> um, but I'd never seen him. Um, i have never just, I call him my care bear. He's my optimist. And, um, I've never seen him needed to, to have a minute like that. But, you know, we decided like, okay, this is the journey we're on. We're going to do this the best we know how. Um, but it's hard. I mean, so, you know, what I thought would be life of um, trying to, you know, figure out how to handle a new baby in this big family became um, who's going to watch the other kids while I go down to oncology and cause she had to go every, you know, two times a week and who's gonna, you know, who's going to hold her down while we take her blood this time. And, you know, Micah would, my oldest, he was 12. No, he was 11 at the time. He would go down with me. He was such a good kid. Um, <laughs> he'd pack his backpack full of schoolwork cause it was hours long. And we would go down and he'd help me. And if nothing else, he was my emotional um rock. My dad went the early days too, you know, and the emotional part of it all was just so overwhelming that um and you're recovering from giving birth, for goodness sake. Right. So like,
0: your hormones are <laughs> yeah. all over as well. Sure. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so there's there's a lot going on. Um I did have people early on, uh I had said to somebody that I was grieving and I got reamed by somebody, um, because like, how dare you grieve a child of God? And, and I have to say, I still like, it's been two and a half years and I am still like, I'm still dealing with this one. Um, sure. you know, a lot of people say to special needs moms, oh, but they're so precious. Like, we know that we know our kids are precious. Like that was, that's, that's never the, been a question. That's not the question of my mind. No, no, we, we don't need the whole, oh, but God's got a plan in their. We know that like this, this child was part of my body, you know, like I get that, um, but there is a grieving that happens. You know, there is an expectation of what you thought, um, life would look like, but there's also an expectation of what you think your child's life should look like. And for me, coming out of trauma and abuse, my number one goal as a mom was to try to make my kids' lives as normal as possible. And this was a huge blow,
0: you know? Right. In that, and I'm going to ask you a question that was not on the script in that, do you, were you dealing with failure? Like, did you feel like you failed? Like, in because oh, like, you're, you're doing a trauma, but obviously this was a hundred percent outside of your control, but do you feel like, or oh, I'm responsible and I'm a failure as a mom?
1: Absolutely. Well, I think there's the, you know, did I do something wrong to cause this? There's all of that, you know, which people talk about. But God, that's real. That's so real. Right. That you, you know, there's no um, the process of having of carrying a child with special needs and then healing from it is a pro. It's a process. You can't explain that away for somebody. Um, but yeah, there is this huge. Um, I feel like I failed all the time. I I, I cried and cried and cried for weeks. Mm-hmm. I tried to explain to my kids that, you know, I God was still good. You know, I honestly at that point we didn't know if she was going to live or die. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know. This is not really bad. I don't know which one would be worse because at the time when she was so tiny and she had all these diagnoses lining up, it's just like your mother's heart breaks and goes, "Oh God, have mercy." Is she in pain? Is she? You know, you don't know. They can't communicate that she wouldn't cry um she didn't cry at all like at all she didn't she didn't make a noise i had to set my timer my alarm to feed her um the doctor said sometimes babies that like this were um they would starve themselves to death if they didn't have an attentive mom like they would starve themselves so you know life was so different and um i yeah the guilt was crazy high um trying to navigate which doctor to go to what therapy to pursue even in like the you know, following months even now I'm, I'm not I mean I am by no means <laughs> I am so new to this journey it's not even funny um, but the guilt is still huge you know we had um, physical therapy come in our house for a number of months and it stressed our entire family out to the point where like I, I knew to schedule out that day to accomplish nothing else. I didn't even make dinner that night because it was just so intense. And so I quit physical therapy and dealt with that guilt of like, am I doing the wrong thing for my kid? You know, um, we pursued other things, you know, and she, by the grace of God, she's doing great, but, um, yeah, it's constant guilt. It's constant. Um, yeah, just mental anguish is really what it is.
0: And then as you had your seventh baby, what emotions, (laughs) fears were you dealing with going into, you know, having another, having another
1: girl? Yeah. Well, number seven was totally a surprise.
0: (laughs) Um, I was
1: so very much done. Let me just, I was very much done after number three (laughs) and um, that's a whole nother story for a whole nother time. But, um, every guy, every baby that God gave us, it's been a, uh, I have had to overcome a lot, especially at the beginning of the pregnancy, and my pregnancies are not easy. Um, I deal with a lot of chronic illness still, and so th- it's such a huge sacrifice. Um, so I was just kind of getting used to the idea that maybe I was pregnant <laughs> when I was taken in January to hospital for preeclampsia, and I had to stay there. Like, I we found out it was pregnant probably about a year ago, maybe a little bit longer um, with number seven. And yeah, the, the the fear that something genetically was wrong was huge. Um, the guilt that I was bringing another child into the world um, and Lael would not have me as much was um, actually crippling, to be honest with you. That was, and, and it doesn't help that there are other people that have not, unkind words to speak like why didn't you do this why you know that this was selfish of you it's like okay it's done let's move on um so it's hard and again the the people pleaser in me wants to explain to everybody this was not my plan this was not my intention but it doesn't matter and um we got an early genetic test done with with aria um about 14 weeks so i knew genetically on paper she was good but she has fear i mean you do i think I think having five, you know, normal, healthy children and then lay out, you just all of a sudden realize like, Oh my gosh, this, anything can happen. Anything. This baby can have a genetic issue. She could have a, um, a systemic issue. She could have, you know, there's so many things that you just didn't realize you took it, you know, took for granted. Um, so I was definitely, uh, really fearful, but I had this, this almost like, staunch, um solid like foundation for walking through everything with Lael. You know, it was a year and a half, two years of like heavy advocacy for my daughter, um, finding a different voice that I've never had before, um, and just not caring what people thought. I mean, just really honestly, I probably had grown more in the last two years of my life than the last, you know, the previous thirty-six. And it's just um, so this was interesting, but I did go into the hospital in January with Aria, um, and had to stay there for five weeks and deliver her prematurely because of preeclampsia. So it's like, it's oh, like, life. just have me just, you know, giving me the blows, but, um, she's happy and she's healthy and we're adjusting still. <laughs>
0: and it's just amazing that, and, and this is, you know, part of the, why this, this podcast, if people would just keep their mouths shut and be kind. Right. <laughs> people, say, people say some of the stupidest things, some of the most insensitive things. And, you know, and I've said this on, you know, podcasts in the past is, you know, sticks and stones break your bones, but words will never hurt you. That's like such the epitome oh. the words stick, the words yeah. repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat. And, and, you know, it's, you know, as a, as a woman going into, I don't even know if I want to be a mom then being an advocate, you know, that being such a plumb line of your DNA is I'm going to be an advocate and a fierce protector of my kids for anyone to come in and to question, you know, mm-hmm. that, that bone, that, that DNA that, that you have, that's innate now is so troubling. And it is, it's heartbreaking and what people say.
1: And I think women have to keep in mind, like, and I think this is the power of what you're doing too, is You know, when people meet you at whatever part of your journey, that's who they think you are. So if you've met me um, three, four years ago, I'm this homeschool mom of money. If you're on my Facebook feed, you're right. You see my kids. um, You might see what we do or what, you know, and I get comments all the time, like, oh, my gosh, you're such a good mom. And I'm going to just be honest, like, I am working it out with fear and trembling, okay? Like, this is not easy for me. There's not one day that momming has been easy for me. Um, I'm just trying to live the best life that I can. But what they don't see are the many, many years of pain and hurt and frustration and abuse and overcoming that have gotten me to where I'm at. And so everybody has that. Everybody has these years where nobody really knows who they are. And we just kind of jump in their story in this timeline and assume that um, they are we think they are and we set the expectations for them and how they should be or how they should react. And it's so unfair that we
0: do that to each other.
1: But we do. Yeah. You know?
0: I wanna um wrap this up with as you're now sharing your story of your abuse, when did that in your adulthood, you know, obviously you you married Dan, you're taking that step of healing to let your guard down and, uh, show intimacy, vulnerability with someone even from six, six feet apart from four years, <laughs> the poor guy, <laughs> um, when did you feel, um, empowered to start, uh, sharing your story and that real, that real healing process for yourself?
1: Sure. I mean, um, so the first person I ever shared my story with was when i was a teenager it was my cousin um she was my very best friend and i think because she couldn't run away from me because she was my cousin (laughs) i felt safe (laughs) um she was on my dad's side she passed away 10 years ago it'll be 10 years this october and when she passed away uh i lost a lot because she was probably the only other person besides my husband who knew everything you know and even my husband like he just i mean he knows everything but like in layers and in seasons and in phases, whereas she was the, um, I just emoted, I I let her have everything. And I remember when she was buried, like just feeling like part of me was buried with her because she, you know, um, that was my only real connection to the process of processing through the trauma. Um, but she was wonderful. Um, and then, yeah, Dan and I, because of our social distancing relationship, um, we um, talked a lot and we wrote a lot. And as things were progressing with us, it was like, Oh God, if this is going to go anywhere, I have to tell him. Um, And again, it was little chunks. It was like, Hey, just so you know, I have some sexual abuse in my past and um, such an awkward conversation, especially like when you knew somebody for years and years and years and you're not even sure, like, are we getting married? Do I tell you these things? So it really wasn't until like we were engaged that more came out. Um, Let me just, be perfectly honest like I didn't realize the extent to what I what I still had to heal from until after we got married um we very much social distance throughout most of our relationship and um, marriage was a huge shock to my system and um it was really hard for me really really hard um to open myself up that way um he has been very amazing and patient and um there's still things I mean there's we're 17 years in um but there's seasons where if something changes or I'm triggered. There's still triggers, right? And so um, there's still things that come up that we have to kind of process through. Um, but he was the second person that I started kind of sharing my story with. Um, and then it really was like five years ago when I heard Nicole braddock Bromley um, share and just share very unapologetically and very just like, this is my story. Like, this is just how it is. And I'm not ashamed of it, that I got really um, brave like I just felt like she inserted courage in me and she I think was the first person that said the word encourage means to insert courage into somebody else
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I felt like that I felt like she did that and so um my platform just became you know private conversations at that point um and this is really the first time I'm saying that's it, where more than one person's gonna hear it at the same time so I'm a little nervous um I give courage to you <laughs> <laughs> <Me purged. too. laughs> And I hope that that's what happens to other people because we don't have to live in um, darkness because something terrible happened to us. And we don't have to be ashamed because we don't look like this cookie cutter version of what a mom or um, a, a, a successful woman or anybody um, should look like. I certainly am never have never been a cookie cutter and that's okay, you know, Um you can still feel loved and whole and accomplish things and be a good mom and be a good wife not perfect and not perfect you know and i have to overcome still daily and i think that's the other truth is um this doesn't go away
0: but you're not trapped in it either no that's good and i and through uh, capturing stories and 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 the beginning of uh the courage being in my soul to share my story too it's that piece of I don't know how much more I have to heal.
1: Right. But I just
0: take, I just take a day at a time and I think, okay, I think I'm good. I think I'm, I think I'm in a whole spot until that trauma trigger occurs yeah. again. And when something comes out sideways, you have a physical, emotional, spiritual response. Yeah. Like, huh, there's still, there's still garbage down in there. And oh yeah. No down in there. Um, but when you have a partner like Dan, I have Chad. Uh, I have my family. I have my kids who are are beginning to hear parts of my story. But when, when you have a community who embrace you like your cousin did and, and, and surround you with love yeah, and pull in that pain and be a safe space for you to share that, that's the power of he- the healing journey. That's the power of inserting that courage to break the silence, to break the shame. And whether it's something that happened to you or something that someone chose to do, it's still shame. It's still brokenness. It's still that journey of vulnerability that when we start speaking our truth and are using our voice, that the power of shame is broken. And that is the bedrock of you know, advocacy that I, I'm hoping to, you know, continue to convey through this podcast is it's breaking the lives of shame. And yeah. we've made choices. I've made poor choices in my life. People have made poor choices in their life. And, you know, I, I say it's like failing an open book test when you know the right answers, and you know, the right answers and you choose to fail an open book test. The amount of shame that comes with that is unbearable, but with gentleness and kindness and Allowing time to heal and forgiveness from people, forgiveness toward myself. It's just powerful. And, you know, that collective vulnerability here is, is the goal. So yeah. Yeah. It's good. Any, any closing remarks for our listeners as we wrap this up?
1: Oh gosh. So many. No. (laughs) Um, I think, um, I think if I were to leave everybody with one thing. It would just be to be open to what God has to use in your life to heal you. Um, because I thought my healing was going to come one way and it has come completely another way. And just when you think that you can't handle something in a gentle, loving way, he shows you, he can't, you can And, um, I am not, I would not be the person I am today Without the very thing I wished away, and that would be my family, you know, my my husband and my kids. Um, For years and years and years, I ran from that. And here I am, healing the deepest parts of my heart through them and um, not using them to do it, (laughs) but God's using them to teach me in big ways, you know, big ways um, that there's hope and there's wholeness. And um, when you take a piece of paper and you rip it all up in all these tiny pieces, and you stack them back up on top of each other, it was stronger than a whole piece of paper in the first place. And that's kind of what I always look at it in my life as, is um, I'll never be able to glue it back together, um, but I'm going to intentionally piece it back together, stack it on top of each other and be strong, because that's what my kids deserve. Um, that's what people behind me who are going through the same thing or have gone through the same thing deserve. They deserve to hear people who have come out on the other side and said, you know, I get it. It sucks. <laughs> like, I think that's the other thing, you know, say to somebody in, in those times. It sucks. You know, there's no good cliches to say except for that. Um, but God's good. And um, there's goodness on the other side and there's healing and hope. That's
0: awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us today and for having the courage to share. Thank your you. Story. I know that you did it with amazing courage. Like you, you didn't even second guess um, that that you wanted to do this you uh, needed to do this you wanted to be a, a voice for other women and mm-hmm. um, gone through abuse and um, even as a special needs mom and the that's a whole nother podcast there with, it with, is. <laughs> with that that piece of motherhood and but you you really just said yeah this is I, I want to do this and I honor mm-hmm. your courage and honored that you were here today to share your story so thank you so much Thanks for having me. You're so welcome. So um, that's it. And we will catch you next time on Genesis Speaks Podcast, where every woman has a story and every story matters. Thanks so much. Subscribe to the Genesis Movement to empower women's voices and reclaim the power over your own narrative.